Let me pray and give thanks um, for our mothers and for uh, the ways that God works um, through the family. And uh, we'll pray for those pastors and we'll jump in. So, um, Father, we do give you thanks for the good gift of motherhood. Lord, we give you thanks for um, just the, uh, the example that um, for many of us, our mothers have been of kindness and goodness and faithfulness and provision. And Lord, for those of us who are hurting today because maybe that wasn't the example they had or they've lost their mother or they long to be that, Lord, would you comfort, uh, comfort those who are downhearted today as well. Lord, we give you thanks for this passage that is a great Mother's Day passage. I uh, pray you help us to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, I made a, a sort of commitment to you on Easter. And the Easter, on Easter, I said I would only tell you two dog stories a year. So either this is your second and final dog story of the year, or I just can't follow through on that commitment. So we'll see what happens throughout the year. Um, but a, a few days after we got our dog, uh, I walked him down with me to the pet food store near our house. And uh, that's a bad idea, by the way. Like, don't take your dog to the pet food store. Um, and uh, one of the workers tried to give our dog, Berlin, a treat. So she got down on his level, and she's got like a really nice, like a kind of high-value treat that she wants to give to him. And instead of him like running up to her and taking it, which is what he would do in our house, uh, he actually ran behind me and started growling. And to be honest, I was a little bit shocked because I'd ne he'd never done that before. You know, every time you'd give him something, he would like lunge for it. And so I told her I was, that I was really sorry that we'd only had him for a few days and I'm a new dog owner and I don't know what to do about this. And she said something to me I'll never forget. She said to me, that's okay. Right now, he's learning that every good gift comes from you. And she had, what she said, she had no idea what she was doing. Uh, and she'd probably be shocked to find out that she did this. But she was quoting almost word for word from the Bible. James 1.17, which should be here on the screen for you, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Wisdom from the girl that worked in the dog food shop. And today we're picking up our study through the first seven chapters of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And we're carrying on with looking at Hannah. And uh, back in chapter 1, if you remember, she was barren and longing to have a son. And God answered that prayer for her to have a son. And uh, it's, it's amazing to me that uh, in this book about this transition from a nation being sort of tribal to becoming a monarchy, God doesn't start with a kingly person. He starts with a humble, uh, broken-hearted woman. Uh, and so that's where it started. And that truth that every good gift is from above, coming down from the Father who does not change, that's exactly what Hannah learns in, in chapter 1. And now as we get to chapter 2, she actually has to begin to, well, not begin, she has to fulfill this vow that she would give this one and only son to service to the Lord for his whole life. And that's where we pick up the story today. And that's partly why this is a great passage for Mother's Day, because we're looking at the prayer of a mother who is recognizing that her son is a gift from God. And that's a great thing for Mother's Day. But the interesting thing about Hannah's story that we're going to focus on is when she takes that truth, that truth that every good gift comes from God, when she takes that into her heart, it, it ends up coming back out as worship. And that's very telling for you and I today, that this pattern of Hannah's taking a truth about God into her heart 
And that heart, that truth actually changing her in such a way that the truth then comes back out of her as an expression of worship, that's a great pattern for you and I. And, you know, we already get how this works. Anytime you receive a good or compelling truth, you almost can't help but share it. You know, I recently heard that um, what's considered the greatest pizza place in America, which, by the way, is not uh, from New York City. And I already know, those of you who know I'm from Chicago, are expecting me to say that it's from Chicago. It is also not from Chicago. Now, stick with me. It's from Phoenix, Arizona. Right? Oh, yeah. Okay, no. Nobody's ever, nobody's ever cheered for Phoenix. <laughs> this pizza place from Phoenix, Arizona, is moving to Los Angeles and opening later this month. If you want to know more about that, you can ask me later. But here's the thing. Uh, do you know what I've done with that truth since I heard it? I've told almost everyone I know. It's so important to me, I wrote it into the sermon. (laughs) I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even sometimes politicians and scholars. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. He also says in that same chapter, he says, praise is inner health made audible. And that's precisely what we catch Hannah doing in this passage. She is praising. She is making her inner health audible. She can't help herself. But at the same time, it it also works the other direction, that the more we praise the right things, in other words, the more we praise God, the more it brings health and vitality into our inner self. So the more we do this external thing, it actually changes us internally. And actually, Hannah, she does both in this passage. She's both expressing her inner health And her praise is also working itself back in to make her spiritually healthy. And the truth that Hannah zeroes in on in this prayer of hers is the strength of the Lord. She actually, she prays or she praises in three parts. First, she kind of focuses on her own heart. She says, the Lord is my strength. Secondly, she goes on to say, the Lord is the strength of the weak. And then thirdly, the Lord is the strength of the king. And so we'll look at those three things. First, the Lord is my strength. Now, the author works very hard to put this prayer into a very specific time and place. Uh, The very last uh, verse of chapter 1, here's what Hannah says, if you just look at that, hopefully you still have it open. So now I give give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. So that's the end of chapter 1. And there we're with Hannah as she fulfills this vow to give her son to God's service as she drops him off to the household of Eli the priest. And then it says, and he worshiped the Lord there. So that's it. He's there. That's where he is. But then look at how uh, chapter 2, verse 1 starts. It says, then, after that, after she left him there, then Hannah prayed and said. And then there's the prayer, but then skip down to verse 11. Then Elkanah, that's her husband. And what that means when it says Elkanah went back is the whole household uh, of Elkanah, which includes Hannah. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Now, why do I point this out? Well, because the writer takes the time to show us that Hannah prays this great prayer sometime between her dropping Samuel off and her uh, traveling back home. 
And not to psychoanalyze too much, but any of you parents will understand immediately. Think of what Hannah must be going through in this moment. The son that she spent years and years praying for, weeping for, longing for, she finally has him. But now she gives him up. Now that doesn't normally work itself out as a moment for praise. You would expect this to be a moment of lament. I mean, maybe if Samuel was older and she had raised him and, you know, he's 18 and she's sending him off to the dormitory uh, at university. I mean, I think that's what it was for my parents. I'm the youngest. And almost the moment I moved into my dorm, my mom and stepdad started getting rid of everything. I mean, they even sold the house. Like I came home one Christmas and I was like, oh, somebody else lives here. Cool. (laughs) But that can't be what Hannah's feeling. This is her younger son. This is or it's her, her only son, her young son, the, the son she prayed for, that she longed for, her joy, her security, and now she's giving him up. And so you'd expect lament, but instead of lament, which by the way, lament is the majority of the prayers in the Bible, instead of lament, what you get is praise. It's worship. Now what's that telling us? Well, here's what that tells us. Part of the motivation of Hannah's prayer of praise, it must be for Hannah to tell her own heart, to engage her own heart in a truth that she knows with her mind, but her heart may not yet believe or trust. Now, what does that mean? Well, the the difference between our head and our heart, what, what, what is the difference there? She knows this truth in her head, but she doesn't trust it in her heart. You know this, there's a difference between knowing a fact or about a fact, and then to trust that fact uh, in, your, in your heart, in other words, in your inner being. There's a difference between those two things. The head is what we know, but our heart, that's our inner being, that's our character. Uh, Hannah has a truth that she knows, but doesn't trust in her inner being just yet. And do you have some of those? Do you have some of those things? I mean, maybe you know in your head that God loves you, but your heart just doesn't believe it or trust it yet. Maybe you know in your mind that God is good, but your heart doesn't trust it yet. Or maybe you know that God is all-powerful or that God cares about your worries. It's easy for us to know a fact, to know a truth in our minds, but much harder for us to then trust it with our heart. And what is the truth that Hannah tells her heart to trust? The truth Hannah needs most in this moment, her moment of greatest weakness, is this in verse 1. It says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. That's the praise. That's her praising God. But now here's the truth. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. Wait a minute. Hannah has horns? Did you see that? <laughs> uh, no, in the Old Testament, a horn is actually a symbol of strength. And so you could translate this as, the Lord is my, uh, in the Lord, my strength is lifted high. In the Lord, my strength is lifted high. So what's Hannah saying? What's the truth that she's telling her heart to rejoice in? What's the truth that she knows in her head, but she doesn't yet believe or trust in her inner being? It's that God is her strength, not a son, not anything else. Because look at verse two. She says, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. And the emphasis on all three lines of verse two is on the truth that God has no equal. There's no equal to his holiness. There's no equal in his steadiness. She says, there is no rock like our God. I mean, think of the image there. 
And so what's she doing here? She's using her mind to tell her heart something that is true. Something her heart hasn't fully believed yet. And this is one of the things that praise or worship can do for us. And so do you feel weak? Hannah felt weak. But instead of dwelling on her weakness, she dwelt on, she praised God for his strength. But take anything. Do you feel guilty? And praise God for his holiness or his compassion or his forgiveness. Do you feel anxious? And praise God for his peace, his steadfastness, his nearness. Do you see how that works? Now here's a general truth from the Bible. Wherever you're weak, the Bible says that God is strong. The Apostle Paul, he says this explicitly in his letter, uh, his second letter to the Corinthians. Uh, he says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is what Hannah models for us. She feels weak. Maybe the weak, this, might, this is probably the weakest moment of her life, probably more weak than what we saw last week. And so she praises God for his strength in order that she would find strength in God. And so this is praise working itself into you to bring about inner health or strength. It sounds kind of backwards, but let me just put it really plainly. It's precisely the times when we least feel like praising God, we least feel like worshiping God, that we need to worship him the most. When you least feel that a truth that you know about God is true, that's the time when you need to praise him the most. And that's what Hannah shows us here. She's in the weakest moment in her life. What does she do? She praises God for her, his strength. But then in verse 3, she actually she makes this transition in her prayer and prays something. Get this. She actually prays something so that you and I can also say the Lord is my strength, just like Hannah did. And that's point two. The Lord is the strength of the weak. And in verse 3, her focus changes. It's no longer on herself, but it's on those around her. And notice the subject of each line in, in verse 1. It's my, then my, then my, then I. But it changes in verse 3. Take a look. You is the implied you. You do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. And so now she's talking to someone else. Someone who thinks they're strong. And it occurred to me when studying this that we tend to think that there is weak and strong. And so we tend to think that it's like this. And here comes one of my famous drawings that will be up on, uh, in an exhibit in MoMA probably soon. I'll go back one more. There we go. We tend to think it's like this. The stronger on the top, the weaker on the bottom. But Hannah shows us something here I hadn't noticed before. It's more like this. It's more like this triangle. The strong are at the top and the weak and the proud are at the bottom. And pride and arrogance, in other words, are also weak. Pride is at the bottom. It's weak. And look at the rest of verse 3. It says, For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. And what that's saying is God knows our pride. He knows our arrogance. He, he knows that pride actually just means that we're weak. 
Now, I quoted from C.S. Lewis before, but he's actually best on this topic of pride as well. Here's what he says about pride. He defines it this way. He says, pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. And what, what Lewis is saying is that to be proud is to be as ungodlike or as ungodly as you can possibly be. And what Hannah goes on to show us in this prayer is that those who are proud, those who think that they are strong, are actually weak. Just look at the kinds of things she says in verse 4. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. So she who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. Do you see the reversal there? The warriors who are proud of their weapons find their weapons, in other words, their strength, they find them broken. But those who stumble, those who are weak, they're armed with strength. The full, that's their strength, the ones whose stomachs are full, all of a sudden find themselves hungry and with no money to buy food, and yet the hungry are full. And, and then very close to Hannah's heart, the barren one has seven children. The number seven in the Bible is usually an illustration of something that's complete or whole. And yet the one who had many sons pines away. And here's what Hannah's showing. It's one more drawing to complete the series. You have to invert the triangle. The weak who turn to the Lord are strong. While the proud, the anti-God state of mind people are actually weak. See, the weak aren't at the bottom. God reverses the order of worldly strength in order to reveal his divine strength. Because look at these next few verses, verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes us alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and he has them inherit a throne of honor. And so now the Lord is the subject of each line. And what these lines show us is that whatever... Whatever strength the proud have, whether that's wealth or power or even life itself, it was given to them by the Lord in the first place. All strength, no matter who has it, comes from the Lord. Therefore, no one has any reason to be arrogant or proud. And by the way, whatever you own, you don't own it. Look at the last part of verse 8. It says, For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world." What that's saying is there's nothing that you own that doesn't belong to the Lord. Now, all that being said, Hannah's point is not only to proclaim this to the proud, but to reveal a tender truth to those who feel weak. Because look at verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. Do you feel weak? Do you turn to the Lord in your weakness? Do you see, do you see what it says? It says he will guard your feet. And that's a funny phrase, he'll guard your feet. But you already know how this phrase works. In ancient Hebrew thought, to say uh, the foot is to say the whole body. To say any body part in, in ancient Hebrew vernacular is to say the whole body. In this context. And so to say something like guard will, God will guard your feet would be the same as you and I saying God will guard you head to toe. 
The weak who turn to the Lord for their strength are guarded, they're strengthened head to toe, but the wicked, the proud, will be silenced and punished. Remember what Paul said, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And Hannah reiterates that once more in the the last part of verse 9 and the start of verse 10. She says in there, it's not by strength that one prevails. Now, this is a truth for which we must learn to worship God. We have to learn to worship God for this. If we don't, if we don't become the kind of people who worship God for his strength, do you see now what we become? We become the proud. We become the arrogant. And if that's true, it means then that we become anti-God. We become the ungodly. And according to these verses, we'll be judged, it says. And so here's the thing. You and I are far better off, far better off being weak and faithful to God than we are being strong and proud. In God's economy, strong and proud, they're at the top. Oh, sorry, strong and proud are at the bottom, but weak and faithful are at the top. The strength of God is it's a truth that we have to learn to work into our hearts so that we can be filled with inner strength. And the best way to do that is, is to follow Hannah's model and use praise and worship to work itself in. And one way to do that, just one way, uh, Clint already talked about it this morning, one way to do that is when you're here on a Sunday, sing loudly, read boldly, sing the truths of these songs, read these parts of the liturgy boldly like you mean it, even if your heart doesn't yet trust it, because the act of doing that actually helps your heart to trust what your mind knows already to be true. And by the way, Clint mentioned this as well, when you do that, it actually helps those around you move that truth from their head into their hearts. Um, years ago, uh, when I was working in another church, there was a woman who had, um, still has actually a very difficult life, difficult marriage, difficult financial situation, all kinds of struggles and difficulties. And as her pastor, I found myself often caring for her through those struggles. And I'll never forget a particularly difficult time in her life. I was also going through a particularly difficult season in my life. And in that season, I felt about as weak as I've ever felt. And we're in church on a Sunday morning, and everything in me did not want to praise God. Here I am, the pastor of the church. I didn't want to praise God. I wanted to keep my mouth shut. And while we were singing, I just, she was just sitting to the, to the right of me. And while we were singing, I just sort of caught her in my peripheral vision. And there was this woman whose life was far more difficult than mine. And she is hands raised, singing her heart out to God as loudly as she could sing. Now, do you know why she was doing that? I think she understood, Hannah understood, that worship is the best way to help our hearts believe and trust a truth that up to this point only our minds know. And more than that, she doesn't know this, I've never told her this, but seeing her singing and praising God with all her might in that moment was one of the most encouraging moments of my life. I thought, if she can praise God in her pain, so can I. If she can lift her hands and she can raise her voice, so can I. And that, in effect, is what Hannah is doing in this middle part of her prayer. She is singing her heart out, and it's meant to encourage you and I, in our weakness, to find our strength in God alone, because there is no one like our God. There is no rock like our God, she says. Now, this... Last verse, it takes an interesting turn because in this last verse, Hannah says something strange. 
It's very strange, actually. Uh, and this is point three. Hannah says, the Lord is the strength of the king. And the reason this is strange is because when Hannah prayed this, Israel had no king. They didn't have a king. Uh, and it, it probably wouldn't be until after Hannah had died before they uh, even have their first king. But look at this last part of verse 10. It says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. At the very beginning of the book about how Israel moves from tribal leadership to monarchy, long before Saul or David or any king appears in Israel, Hannah prays this prayer and says that God will be the strength of the king. And her prayer is that this coming king will be an agent for the weak, for the poor, for the needy, for the hungry, for the barren. And so Hannah's prayer looks forward to God's king ruling in fairness and justice and to a king whose strength isn't a proud or arrogant strength, but instead a quiet, humble strength that comes from God. Now, of course, if you read through the rest of First and Second Samuel and then on into the books of First and Second Kings, what you'll find is that no king ever lives up to that ideal. In fact, from king to king, it, just, it goes from bad to worse, to worse, to worse, to worse. And so if you're reading this and you get to the end, like you've read Hannah's prayer, you know what she's prayed for, then you read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, you get to the end, you're left waiting and wondering when this humble servant king, whose strength is God, will finally come. When will this happen? Well, there is a hint. There's a hint here in Hannah's prayer. Because notice how beautifully composed the entire prayer is. Hannah begins with the image of a horn. Remember that? In verse 1, a horn is an image of strength. But she also ends the prayer with the image of a horn. She bookends it. But this time it's not Hannah's strength. The horn is the horn, the strength of God's anointed one. And that word anointed, that's another Hebrew idea, Hebrew word, that you already know this word. It's the word Messiah. The Lord is the horn of the Messiah. So Hannah is looking, she is looking forward to a coming king, but without fully knowing it, she's looking forward to God's true king, to God's true anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And of course, who is Jesus Christ? The Messiah, but God himself in the flesh. And think about this. How did he come? Did he come in power? With pride? With arrogance? No, he came with humility. He came in weakness in order that he would be the savior of the weak. He lived in weakness and humility, and he died in weakness. All the while drawing his strength, not from pride, not from arrogance, though he could have. He drew his strength from God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And so what this passage points us to is that Jesus Christ is the faithful king that Hannah was longing for. That's who she was longing for. The one who finds his strength not in might, not in power, not in resources, not in plunder, but in God alone. Jesus Christ is the weak in the eyes of the world suffering servant that Isaiah anticipated years later. Now you need to see this. So turn to Isaiah uh, chapter 53. It's page 634. If you have one of those black Bibles. Isaiah 53 page 634, and I'll start in the second half of verse 2. It's talking about, Isaiah's looking for, he's also anticipating this anointed one. And here's what he says about him. Listen for the humility, listen for the weakness in this 
anointed one. It says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Isaiah is talking about a weak person, a servant. Not a strong, arrogant one, but a suffering servant. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. This weak servant was pierced and crushed. Not for his own sin, it says, but for ours. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. That is the chief sin of humankind. It is your sin. It is your main sin. It is my main sin that we turned away from God and rejected him. And yet, in his great love and compassion, verse 6, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so here you have this weak, suffering servant, dying. And yet look, look what it says, verse 11. After he has suffered... He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. Now, do you see this reversal that Hannah prayed for? Do you remember what she prayed in verse 6? That the Lord brings death, and he makes alive. He brings down to the grave, and he raises up. This is what God has done for his anointed one, Jesus Christ. He has made him alive. Jesus willingly was brought down to the grave for our sins. And what it says is that God has raised him up. He is the fulfillment of what Hannah was praying for when she said, the Lord will be the strength of the king, of the anointed one. And by the way, and actually not by the way, this is the entire point. Look, at me, uh, look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. It'll be on the screen. And in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is praying that the church in Ephesus will grasp this incredible truth about the strength of God. And right in the middle of his prayer, he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. And listen to this. And his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And did you catch that right in the middle? 
That same power, that same strength that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead is the very same power, it's the very same strength that says that he has for you. That is a truth you can praise God for. You can do that every moment of every day for the rest of your life. That very same strength God the Father exerted to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and seat him high above all rule and authority and power and dominion in this age and in the age to come. That strength is the same strength with which he answers your prayers fulfills your needs, makes strong your weakness. And if you can learn to praise God for that, like Hannah did, you will be filled with an inner strength, an inner health beyond anything worldly strength or arrogance or power can give you, beyond anything money can give you, beyond anything this world can give to look to, to trust in the very same power, the very same strength that God exerted to raise Jesus Christ from the dead is what will give you strength in your time of need and your moment of weakness. Why look to anything else? So back to Hannah. Let's wrap this up. Do you feel weak? Do you feel fragile? delicate, anxious. Then follow Hannah's example and take the truth you know in your head that God is strong, that God is almighty. Remember that's how she started her prayer last week? He, almighty God, and worship him. Allow your head to lead your heart into worship so that truth can then work its way into your inner being and then come back out is inner health made audible. Praise God who is your strength in order to find your strength in God alone. That's what we learned from Hannah. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we worship you as the God we sang about, the one who turns graves into gardens as the one who raises from the dead, as the one who, who just inverts our understanding of weakness and power, as the one who is right there beside us to be our strength in our time of weakness. We praise you as that God this morning. We give thanks for your kindness for us, that you use that power and that strength, not only to raise Christ from the dead, but to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us of our unrighteousness, and to give us the life that is truly life in the name of Jesus. We worship you this morning. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's our practice every week to reflect on God's power for us in Christ by sharing in the Lord's Supper together. And so around you will be one of these cups. And I I often think, you know, you're thinking about the power of God and then we have this. (laughs) Uh, But don't let that throw you off. Uh, Because this is a way for us to remember God exerting that great power 
on our behalf. And so before Jesus uh, was arrested, betrayed, arrested, crucified, buried, he shared a meal with his disciples. And during that meal, he picked up some bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. As often as you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. So let's remember his body broken for us as we eat together. A little while later during that same meal, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him as we drink together. He said to his disciples that he wouldn't drink of the cup again until he drinks it uh, when everything is renewed and we're with him in glory. And so we look forward to that day. Uh, as we eat and drink. Uh, Let me pray, and then uh, Clint will come and lead us in a time of response. Our Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, that he came in the flesh, that he shed his blood, in order that we could get what only he deserves, your love, your righteousness, your peace. And it's in his name we pray and give thanks. Amen.